The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Good to see all of you here today. I was so encouraged all week long. Frank and Ed kept telling me about how excited they were about Sunday. They couldn't wait for Sunday to get here. I thought it was because of my message. And then I realized the Patriots and the Giants were playing today, and I got pretty discouraged at one point, but that's all right. I'm glad you're here. I know you're excited about this, right? You're not excited about anything later, just about this. So let's look here at verses 4 to 25 one last time. This is our last Sunday here in Genesis 2. We'll be moving into Genesis chapter 3 next week. But as I told you today, we're going to do a little different kind of a time together. It's going to be all application based on what we've seen the last two Sundays. We'll come back to that here in a moment. Let's begin by reading verses 4 to 25. Moses writes, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of, the, of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedallium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, you have, I think, taught us quite a bit here in Genesis 2, about marriage, about mankind, just who we are in general. And it has been an enlightening study to see that you have put us here on this earth, or you put us here on this earth with all of these amazing blessings. And yet, Lord, we know what's coming next chapter. We know that Adam and Eve, mankind, humanity is going to blow it. And so here we are this morning now, gathered as a group of people living under that fall, under the consequences of that sin. And we're coming back to a time before the fall so that we can see and understand what it is that you had originally made in an effort, Lord, in an attempt to not just understand it, but to try to live our lives in a manner that reflects your ultimate purpose for all these things. And so for the last two Sundays now, Father, we have been trying to understand marriage and the relationship between man and woman. You have been kind to show us principles. 
We have tried to be diligent, to be faithful to the text and the context to understand. And now today, Lord, we, we need to apply this stuff to our hearts. We need to understand it through Jesus because it's written about him. Jesus, you yourself said this, that everything Moses wrote, he wrote about you. And so this morning, Lord, there are people in this room who, who are here for all different kinds of reasons. Some specifically came back today because they wanted to understand how to fix their marriages. There's problems. And the temptation right up front, Lord, in everyone's hearts, including my own, is to try to figure out the things that we have to do ourselves to make this happen. But Lord, more than anything else today, what we need to see and what we need to understand is it has never been about us. Never. And so, Lord, as we work through the text this morning, our only request here at the beginning is that you will open the eyes of our heart to see how Jesus and his death for us can change our marriages completely into something that reflects the beauty of redemption, which is what it's all about anyway. And so, Father, will you do this? Will you have your spirit active here in our midst, taking your word and applying it to each and every heart, each and every home in the room this morning? Help us to know these things and then to experience, experience them beginning today in our lives, our marriages here at Cornerstone, we ask. And so, Father, you are the only one who can do this, and we come to you this morning very humbly asking for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't been here for the previous two messages, I should probably begin with an apology to you a little bit for what we're going to do today. Um, I normally try to get people, I, I try to review enough to keep people on the same page with everything that's going on because I don't like it when you're gone for Sunday and you come back and they're like, last week was great, but we're not going to talk about that at all. We're just going to move on to this and too bad you weren't here to catch up uh, on what happened. I want you to stay up with us. However, we have a lot to go through today. And so I don't want to spend a ton of time reviewing. So if I say something that's clearly referencing something from last week or the week before, and you're completely lost as to what's going on, I apologize. Jordan said this morning he's working on getting the, the website updated with the most recent messages, so you'll just have to go and listen for yourself. I will do my best, though, to try to keep you as much on the same page, even if you were here last week, because I know even for those of you who are here, as wonderful as it was, you probably don't remember every little detail of everything we looked at. So I will do a little, well, Ed does, but I'll look at a little bit of review along the way to try to keep us together as much as possible this morning. We've spent two Sundays now looking here at Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25, trying to understand the final component of this statement right here that I've just put behind me. That God has made human beings, both male and fam female, with three components— spiritual capacity, moral responsibility, and communal assistance. That he's given us these three things that are necessary for us to serve him, to obey him, to keep his commandments here in this world that he had made. This is what he's doing and what we're seeing in Genesis chapter 2. The statement is a summary statement, okay? It just encapsulates it into one, one little sentence so that you can understand what we're doing because here in chapter 2, Moses is giving to us in more detail than he did in chapter 1 an explanation of who man is. Who is he? What kind of creature is this that God has made? Because this creature isn't like any of the other creatures. This creature is different because he has been made specifically in God's image and likeness to represent him here on this earth. And as such, then, he's given him these three things, spiritual capacity, moral responsibility, and communal assistance so that man can succeed at what God had put him here to do. In chapter 2, Moses is trying to lay a foundation for us for what we're about to read in chapter 3, which is going to be nothing short of heartbreaking as we get into it. We're going to see by the time we get midway or so through chapter 3 that the sin of Adam and Eve, the fall, is completely inexcusable. It's completely crazy that they would do what they did. God had given them everything they needed to serve him and keep his commands on this earth. And yet, of course, we know that they're going to blow it. This here, chapter 2, is scene one of three. 
in this story of what happened to the good world that God had made. Well, here at the end, we're learning now about this communal assistance aspect that we've been working on here for some time. We spent two weeks now trying to understand the various components of this. Like, you know, what is, what's so special about the creation of woman? Because uh, Moses is going to treat this, God is going to treat this differently than he does anything else that he makes in all of creation. So we looked at that. Last week, we came back and we tried to understand the creation of marriage. And we ended last time, very briefly, looking at an incredible statement. I just was trying to prime the pump, really. Looking at an incredible statement of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, you find a quote of Genesis 2.24, which I, again, put here behind me just to refresh your memory. In Genesis 2.24, as Moses is writing about this first marriage, the creation of Eve and what's going on with this, he wants to make sure that his readers understand the significance of this. And so he makes an application. Here's your application. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Just like Adam and Eve were literally one flesh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, the deeper significance of this, Moses says, is that for every married couple everywhere throughout the rest of time, when they come together, guess what? They too are one flesh. That's Moses' point. Well, then you come to Ephesians chapter 5, and you see Paul doing the exact same kind of thing. He begins in verse 22 talking about wives and what they should do. He talks about the husbands and what they should do. And he's constantly bringing it back to Jesus and the church. Jesus and the church. Jesus and the church. Okay. Then he gets to verse 31 and he quotes Moses here. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, to become one flesh. It's, It's almost verbatim. Genesis 2 still applies, Moses says. As you're thinking about your marriages today... Don't forget Genesis 2 because the truth of that still applies. However, there's a deeper significance still. There's something even deeper than what Moses said. Moses looked at at Adam and Eve's marriage and he said, listen, this has significance for everybody. And Paul's going to say, look at this, it has significance for everybody. It really applies to something completely different. And of course, You and I, if if you've been in church any length of time, you know what Paul's going to say next. He's going to say, look, this is a mystery, but I'm telling you, it applies to Jesus and the church. The truth that a man and woman can become one is really a picture of what's going on with Jesus and the church. And so I gave you this little uh, sentence here, a sentence about what is marriage really then? Okay, we, we've looked at it in Genesis 2, which is good. That's a foundation. But Paul's taking us deeper. What is, what is marriage? Well, here it is. Marriage is really an experiential illustration of redemption. That's really what it is, Paul says. As you look at the union between man and woman and all that's implied there, it's really intended to be an experiential illustration of redemption. It's experiential, which means that you get to what? Experience it. You get to see it and feel it and live it and, and, and hear it. It's around you. Even if, even if you're not married, you can watch it in everyone around you. It's an experience, something you can see. It's an illustration. That means it's supposed to picture something. It's supposed to explain something to you. And that something is redemption. This is what it's really about. About the fact that Jesus, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth as a man so that he could die on the cross for our sins, to make us one with him. This is really what it's about. And that, obviously, then, is very important, okay? (laughs) Am I just saying the obvious? Probably so, but that's okay. It's very important. It's so important, then, that as we come back to Genesis 2, when we think about the five biblical principles that we saw there last week, we can't really understand those five principles apart from the truth of Ephesians 5. Apart from understanding that marriage is really supposed to be an experiential illustration of redemption, I can't really understand what those five principles are or, or how they apply to our lives. And so what, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go back through the five principles again. 
Okay, so if you were here last week, you already know the outline, right? It's the same five points. Nothing's changed in the five points. We're going to go back through the five principles, but this time we're not just going to try to understand them within the context of marriage, which we are going to do. We first need to understand them through the context of redemption. See, until we understand that, we don't really understand how it applies to marriage. Until we can see these things through the lens of Jesus, then we don't really get what it is that you and I need to do, what it is that we're supposed to be doing in our marriages. And my hope for us is that by seeing how the gospel permeates these principles and affects our understanding of these principles, clarifies these principles, and ultimately empowers these principles, until my hope is that as we see these things that God will use the truth of his word, the truth of the gospel, to change everybody's marriage in this room. Even if you have a good marriage, okay? You're not perfect. You've got problems. You've got sins. You've got things that need to happen. And so our hope is that the Lord will take these truths and use them here in our church. So let's just start at the beginning. Number one, first principle we saw last week, was that marriage is the complete union of one man with one woman. And what we noticed here last time was that when Adam saw Eve for the first time, he became what? Do you remember? He became poetic. very first poetry we see in the scriptures is here in Genesis 2, verse 23. It's Hebrew poetry. He says, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And what I wanted to draw your attention to there was not the poetry, but it was the truth that Adam was exalting through his poetry. And what was that truth? It was that the two of them were one. That's what he's exalting here in verse 23. It's their oneness. She is bone of my bones. She is flesh of my flesh. She is part of me. Adam says. That's what he's exalting. And this, of course, is then what Moses does down in verse 24. He picks up on that and he comments about it. Well, hey, guess what? For this reason, therefore, every man needs to leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two are going to become one flesh. They're really going to experience this oneness just like Adam and Eve did. The words one flesh here refers to the complete union between man and woman. Everything. Body, soul, mind, spirit. In every way you think about it, they become one. And just like Adam and Eve are literally one flesh, that same principle or truth applies to everybody, Moses says. We all experience the same bond. And so the very first principle we saw here about biblical marriage in Genesis 2 is that marriage is the complete union of one man with one woman. Okay, But according to Paul, that really applies to who? To Jesus and his church. It's intended to be an experiential illustration of redemption. And so this oneness, this union, is supposed to teach us something about how Jesus sees the church and how the church relates to Christ. And so how how does that work for us? Well, what I came to realize, and, and not on my own with the help of others, is that when you really stop and think about the concept of salvation, just by itself, okay, salvation as a concept, I hope you understand that every single aspect of salvation is directly tied to our union with Jesus. Everything, start to finish. Um, Anthony Hokema explains this with eight points about how salvation is tied to our union with Christ. And I'm just going to give you the points and read the scriptures to you so you can hear it. There's too much to put it all on the screen. But he says, number one, we are initially united with Christ in regeneration. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. The fact that you have been given new life, regeneration is bringing something back to life. It's not done in a vacuum. It's done through union with Jesus. Number two, we appropriate and continue to live out this union through faith. So Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I that lives, it's Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's, It's not me now, Paul says. It's Christ in me. It's how I continue living this life of faith. 
We're justified, made righteous in God's eyes in union with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, God, made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. See, our righteousness that we have before the Father, it's not our own. You know that. It's o- it only comes through our union with Jesus. Number four, we are sanctified through union with Christ. So Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? He's a new creation. All the old is gone. The new has come. We persevere, number five, we persevere in the life of faith in union with Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29. I am sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the fact that I have no fear that God will ever turn his back on me, it's not tied to my goodness it's tied to the fact that I'm in Jesus. It's because he loves me in Christ that he's promised to never, never turn his back on me ever again. We are said to die in Christ, Romans 14, 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. We should be raised with Christ, 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The only reason you have hope of eternal life, of a future resurrection, is because of Jesus. Because you're connected to him, you're in him. And then number eight, we shall be eternally glorified with Christ. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's because you're connected to him that you get to experience those things. So what you see as you think about this concept is that salvation from start to finish, beginning to end, is all about our union with Jesus, about the union between Jesus and his people. And you can see from these verses I read to you that this union applies to everything about us, every aspect of our spiritual life. Well, guess what, husbands and wives? In like manner, your union with each other is complete. You are completely one in everything, and your marriage should be reflecting that. Your decisions should be one. Your actions should be one. Your goals, your desires, they should be one. If, if you look at your marriage and you see a division between husband and wife and what each wants and what each does and how they decide, this is a problem because it's not accurately reflecting the experience that we have personally with our Savior. And we'll come back at the end and talk more about how we, we, have, we change that, what we're going to do with that. But I'm telling you now that as you think about this union between husband and wife, understand it through the lens of Jesus, the lens of the gospel. Number two, we see marriage as being ordained by God. Moses says in, uh, here in Genesis 2, that God brought the woman to the man, and the word brought here, we talked about this last week, has the connotation of a, of a woman being brought to her husband in marriage. This, this is the word that he's using here. So what you see is the first wedding, the first marriage here in Genesis 2. And what this teaches us is that marriage is ordained by God, that it belongs to him. Therefore, he gets to define it. He gets to set the rules for it. He gets to own it. He gets to determine the importance of it. And as I think about this and how this affects my understanding of the gospel, my understanding of redemption, I'm reminded of the fact that all of redemption belongs to the Lord as well, right? It's his completely. It's his, his plan, his choice, so that Paul in Ephesians 1 can say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, how? In Christ, union, you see it again, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, uh, glorious grace, with which he has blessed us. How? In the beloved. Union again. Could, could Paul be any clearer than this? as to how he understands who owns redemption? 
It's not yours. It's not mine. Our salvation has nothing to do with us. This is all about God. It belongs to Him. It's His start to finish. And just like with redemption then, marriage belongs to God as well. There's a fascinating word that's used in the New Testament. It's the word charismata. You, you may, that may sound familiar to you at first. It means grace gift. Okay, That's what a charismata is. It's a grace gift. In other words, it's a gift that you don't earn. It's a gift that you don't work for. Something that's just given to you freely as, out of grace. Okay, that's what grace is talking about. Something you don't deserve, something you don't earn. It's given to you freely. And there are three main things that the New Testament defines as a charismatic. Can you guess what they are? Number one, give me your, give me your number one guess what you think the word charismatic is used to refer to in the New Testament. What's that? Salvation. Okay. Everybody should yell that one out together at once. Come on. Salvation. Thank you. It's late, though. Salvation. So that, you know, Paul, when he's there in Romans 6, he can say, look, the wages of sin is death. You want, to, you want to get what you work for? There you go. That's your wages. But the free gift, the charismata, the gracious gift of God is what? Eternal life. How? In union, Christ Jesus our Lord. See, it's tied to this. It's a grace gift. The second thing it's used to refer to in the New Testament are what we normally call spiritual gifts. So that someone who is a charismatic, they use that name to describe themselves, is a person who says, I'm identifying with these charismata, these gracious gifts that God gives that you read about in the New Testament. Okay, and I, the only thing I'd point out about this, and this is a rabbit trail, just give me a pause for a second. To me, and maybe you'll disagree, and if you do, that's fine. To me, it makes about as much sense to identify myself with God's gift like that as it would if I gave Jamie, a, let's say I gave her a necklace for Valentine's Day, and she says, oh, look, I'm Jamie Necklace now. I, I'm married to Necklace. I want everyone to know about my connection to the necklace. It's a gift. I'm her husband. Her connection is to me. And I have an issue with people who want to say that this thing is so important that this is who I am. No, no, no. You belong to Jesus. Whatever you think about the other stuff, we can argue about that later. But you are a Christian. You are, you are a Jesus follower first and foremost. Let the other stuff go. Let it go. But the second thing, okay, that was my rabbit trail. Sorry, I'm back on track. Second thing, second thing that you see referred to with as a charismata in the New Testament is what we normally call spiritual gifts. You want to guess what the third thing is? What's our topic today? Marriage. Marriage is referred to as a charismata also. As a grace gift, something not earned or deserved. So that, for example, in a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is discussing marriage and singleness, in verse 7 he can say to the Corinthians, hey look, each of you has your own gift from God, your own charismata from him, one in one manner, one in the other. Some of you have been given the gracious gift of marriage. You didn't earn it wasn't because you were smart enough to join up to eHarmony or Match or to go to that mixer that night. It's not your thing. God gave that to you. And some of you are single because God's given you that gift as well. You're like, can I exchange? You know, I had a very wise man one time, Brian Trainer. He said to me, it would be better. He's talking about, this is something he said to people who were in the process of getting married. He said he told them every time, it's better to be on the outside of marriage wanting in than on the inside of marriage wanting out. Okay? And he's right about that. Okay, my only point right here is that you need to understand that either state, marriage or singleness, guess what it is? It's God's gift to you. It's his because he owns it. It's ordained by him. Husbands, wives, you're going to have to prepare yourselves for this statement. Husbands, you are God's gracious gift to your wife. That was wrong answer. All right, ladies, your turn. Wives, you are God's gracious gift to your husband. Oh, disappointing. Come on. And those of you in here who are single, your singleness is God's gracious gift to you. 
right now. See, we want to think that we own all these pieces, that we control them. We don't. They're not ours. They're the Lord's. And so whatever state you're in, singled or married, you need to understand that God ordained that for you. Just like salvation, just like spiritual gifts, it's God's gift to you, which means your marriage isn't a mistake. Because some of you may have wondered, and I'm not being funny, your marriage isn't a mistake. Your singleness isn't a mistake. It's not an accident. God is involved in both pieces and how you process that and how you interact with that truth. Well, again, that's what we're going to look at here at the end. Number three, we see marriage as the new identity of both spouses. There in verse 23, as Adam started becoming poetic over Eve, he did something that I told you was very important here in the text. He names both himself and Eve, both himself and the woman. She will be called Esau. Because she is taken out of East. He's giving new names to each of them. Not, not in relation to the ground or to anything else in creation. They both take on new identities in relation to each other. That's what's significant about this. Did, did you ever stop and realize that that same truth applies to Jesus and the church? And, and redemption and salvation? In order to bring about our salvation, the Son of God had to become man. Right? He had to be made like one of us. And so Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, what did he do? He emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He took on a, a new identity so that he could be one of us, become one with us in salvation. And because of that, and I, I've told you before how much I like this, Paul says that therefore God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the above every name name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, things under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He, he, he takes on a new identity and he gets a new name so he could save you and I. Well, guess what? Same applies to us here. Formerly, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Okay? That was our identity. That was who we were. But Jesus comes now and he reconciles us how? Union in his body of flesh by his death so that he could make us something new, holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. New identity, new words, new names, new descriptions for who we are in Christ. Our identity completely changed when we're made one with him. Well, again, husbands and wives, same applies to us. Husbands like Jesus, you need to humble yourself, to empty yourself, as the text said, out of love for your wife. Your your life is not your own now. You don't own it anymore. You just can't go home and play video games and, or go golfing or watch TV or do whatever it is you used to do when you were single. That was fine when you didn't have anyone else that God had made yours, when he hadn't given you as a gracious gift to some woman. Please don't make it a bad gift by your stupidity. Please. Ladies, you are no longer your own. Now, like the church, you need to follow your husbands. You're his helper You've taken on a new identity in relation to him. You need to support him and love him and respect him and forgive him just like Jesus has forgiven you. If if in your heart and mind you have defined your role as either husband or wife, okay, whatever is appropriate, by some standard other than Jesus, other than the church, you don't have a right definition to even begin to try to make changes in your life as to what's wrong in your marriage. <laughs> You're not even starting from the, from the right, you know, um, runway. You can't even go to the right direction because you're, you're all wrong at the very, the most foundational level. Your identity now not only is tied up with Jesus, but if you're married, it's connected to your spouse and that needs to affect the way you see yourself. You should see yourself in relation to your spouse in every possible way. Number four... We see marriage as the most important relationship of life. And do I, even, do I even need to take the time to explain how this applies to Jesus and the church? No, but I'm going to anyway because that's my job, right? 
Jesus, when I thought of this, I was like, where do you turn? I mean, there's so many places, but the first thing that came to my mind was some of the most difficult words I think our Lord ever spoke. My opinion, you may disagree, but to me, when I read these, I, I see it in the starkest of terms how important my relationship with Christ should be. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Anyone comes to me, doesn't hate their father and mother, their wife, their children, their brothers and sisters, even their own life, they can't be my disciple. I don't hate any of those people, particularly not myself. So how, how can I be a disciple of Jesus? But I understand his point, even though I think his words are very hard. His point is clear. Our relationship with him is primary. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. Well, our marriages should reflect that kind of thinking on the human level. Husbands, your love for your wife should be greater than anyone or anything else in this world. There is no one else you should want to be with more. No one. There's nothing else you should be wanting to be doing more than just to be with your wife. She's your best friend, your confidant, your lover. You should want to be with her more than anyone else. Why? Same for you. There is no one in this world that you should love more than your husband. No one should come above him, not even your kids. And that's hard, isn't it, ladies, to hear that? But it's true. It's true. He should be your best friend, the shoulder you cry on, the love of your life. And if I were to ask you right now, and don't say it out loud, who's your best friend? If the first person that comes to your mind is anyone other than your spouse, it's a problem. There's a problem because this should be the most important human relationship of life, just like our relationship with the Lord should be the most important relationship of our life in any sphere. And then number five, we see marriage as the mutual expression of openness and trust. Mutual expression of openness and trust. In verse 25, Moses told us that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And what I argued with you last time was that that refers to the fact that they were living in an innocent state where there was complete openness and trust. No shame. None. Nothing. Because shame doesn't come until chapter 3 when what enters the scene? What brings shame in chapter 3? Sin. Okay, Sin is what brings shame to Adam and Eve. Well, because shame comes from sin... And sin was paid for in its entirety by Jesus. As I think about how this applies to me in Christ, I realize there's no more shame for me. None. There's no shame between me and the Father now, no matter what I do in my life, because every single sin has been paid for by Christ. So that Paul can ask in Romans 8, what can we say to these things? If God is for us, who in the world could be against us? If he didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, would he not now give also with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge? Who's going to stand up and accuse? Nobody. Who can condemn? Nobody. Why? Because it's Jesus who died. It's Jesus who has paid for all that sin, and the shame is gone ever completely paid for by the death of Christ. Nothing now separates us from him. Complete openness before the Father. Complete trust before God. Our marriages should reflect that as well. Complete openness. Complete trust. Not just based on friendship or compatibility, right? That's what normally you think of when you think about what makes me open up to someone, whether or not I'm going to trust someone. It's about compatibility and, you know, those are good, and that's fine in other relationships. When it comes to my spouse, this is different because we're one. And guess what? I'm a sinner, and you know who knows that better than anyone else in this world? My wife. Okay? She knows it better than anyone else in this world how much of a sinner I am. And you know what she is? She's a sinner. And you know who knows that better than anyone else in this world? But both of us have been forgiven. Both of us have had our sin paid for by Jesus. And so even though I'm a failure, even though she's a failure, 
in this marriage relationship, we can experience the same kind of openness and trust because we know that the foundation of that isn't just compatibility. It's the gospel. That's what brings it about for us. Well, practically speaking then, okay, so there's the five principles through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of Jesus. Practically speaking, now what do you do? What what do you need to do to try to make adjustments or changes to your marriage that will actually help you with these things? Well, I think the answer is really quite simple. Here it is. I didn't even put a slide for it. It's so simple. You need to be like Jesus. You're like, that's not so simple. (laughs) No, it's not. Not in reality. The reason I'm saying this is bound up in that statement that I gave you at the very beginning. That marriage is really an experiential illustration of redemption. Well, okay, if, if marriage is about redemption, then it's really all about Jesus. And what this reflects for me then is a Christ-centered view of marriage versus a man-centered view of marriage. Because that's normally, you know, we talk to people about marriage, they're having problems, they come in, they want to talk. You're normally dealing with a bunch of thoughts and beliefs and practices that are very man-centered, Okay. Well, how do we get away from this and try to have a Christ-centered view of marriage so that these five principles can play themselves out in our lives? Well, I would simply say to you this, that the key to having a better, more successful biblical marriage is not becoming a better person. It's not becoming a better husband or trying to be a better wife. That's not the answer to how you improve your marriage. You want to know how to improve your marriage? You need to become more like Jesus. That's the only thing that's going to help. You have to pursue Christ-likeness. And you might be sitting there thinking, okay, well, that, okay, I get what you're saying, but, but what does that mean practically still, Stacey? What do I need to do? Well, I'd say, biblically speaking, if you want to be like Jesus, you've got to grow in five areas. Okay, we've talked about these five before. I've got nothing else to give you, though. These are the five things I really think you need to pursue growth in. Number one, you need to pursue truth. You need to pursue truth because Jesus is truth. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. If you want to see your marriage change, you need to fill your life and your marriage with truth. And guess where that always starts? There. You are not going to see any change in your marriage until you're actually in his word. But I want it today. I know you want it today. You're not going to see any change in your marriage until you fill your life with truth. And by the way, the problem is not primarily your spouse. Because you can't control your spouse. So if you're having a problem in this respect, look at yourself. Are you filling your life with truth? Are you trying at all to be in the Word? If you are not regularly spending time saturating your heart and mind in the scriptures, do not sit there and expect that you'll ever see any change. Because God uses his word to teach us about his son and to make us like him. It's the power behind change. It's the power behind sanctification. And it's not as simple as we just read your Bible. 15 minutes a day keeps the devil away. This is not what I'm saying. You have to actively be pursuing truth If you ever want to be like our Savior, you have to. You can do it through reading the Scriptures, that's first and foremost. You can also do it through pursuing uh, godly, Christ-centered books or teachings on marriage. Our core training class, Caleb, they're using Love That Lasts, right? You want a good, good book on marriage? You should read Gary and Betsy Ricucci's book, Love That Lasts, When Marriage Meets Grace. I've not read a whole lot of books on marriage, I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but it's the best one I've read. Because it constantly takes you and says, okay, here's your marriage, here's the gospel. Here's your marriage, here's the gospel. Here's your marriage, here's the gospel. Here's how the gospel affects your marriage. Here's how you should understand your husband in light of the gospel. Here's how you should understand your wife in light of the gospel. It's truth. It's not the scriptures, but it's still truth. You want to see change in your marriage, change that actually lasts. You need to do it by pursuing truth. That's the only way you become like Jesus. It's the only way that you can make your marriage that experiential illustration of redemption that it's really supposed to be. Number two, you need to pursue genuine spirituality. Genuine is the key word here. Not spirituality in the sense of, oh, look, I I think there's angels all around me and, and I had an experience today and... 
No, no. That's crap spirituality. I'm talking about genuine spirituality. Jesus. Think about Jesus. He's God. And what does he make a regular practice of doing? Pray. Why does God the Son need to pray to God the Father? I don't even understand that completely. But I would simply point out to you that our Lord understood the importance of maintaining an intimate relationship with God that was real, genuine. No play stuff. No, just, I showed up at church on Sunday. I'm good. I'm spiritual. No, real. He took it so real that when the, the Pharisees came and said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He said, it's easy. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's it. It's first because it's foundational. Because everything else builds itself off of that. And what's an amazing truth, I think, here is that when you're looking at your marriage and you're thinking, oh, there's some of these problems, I, I need to change this, I need to change that, people so often overlook the fact that first and foremost, they got to love God. I've had people come to me in various contexts over the years and say, oh, we're having problems in our marriage, or this has happened, that's happened, or I've heard about problems, or whatever, okay? You know what one of the number one issues is normally in those marriages when they finally reach the point where they got to come and talk to somebody? No, no shock here, it's, it's selfishness. Okay? That's, that's normally the number one problem. Some form of it expresses itself differently, but it's there. You know what selfishness is, right? It's loving yourself with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a form of idolatry. That's all it is. Well, do you really think then that the answer to idolatry is just switching out one idol for another? Oh, I just need to stop loving myself and I just need to love my wife. You do need to love your wife, I agree. But that's not first. It can't be first. Because until you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're never going to be the spouse you need to be. You say, Stacy, I, I fail. I understand that. I'm not saying that you need to be perfect at it. I'm telling you what your first action is, your first goal, the first pursuit, the thing that should take first precedence in your heart and life. This is the path to pursue first. And the more you love Jesus, guess what? The more you love your husband. The more you love God, guess what? The more you love your wife. It's amazing. It happens. Because as you're pursuing Christ's likeness, you begin to better reflect that experiential illustration of redemption that marriage was supposed to be from the very beginning. You've got to pursue genuine spirituality. Number three, you need to pursue community. Community. And I mentioned two weeks ago how God, God lives in a constant state of community. That's what the Trinity is. One God, three persons. God the Father, Son, Spirit. Okay? He's always lived in community. God has never lived alone. And when he makes man, he's creating this world, he makes man to live in community. And when Jesus comes to this earth, Jesus doesn't come as some lone ranger, does he? What is the first thing he does when he starts ministry? Get some people. I've got I to surround myself with people so I can live my life with them. Community. And after he dies and goes back to heaven, what does he start doing then? He starts putting together his church, which is what? Community. It's a constant theme, start to finish. There, the importance, the significance of community. Well, guess what? If you want to have a biblical marriage, if you want to begin pursuing a path to become more like Jesus in, those, in that way, you have to surround yourself with people who will help you in that journey. But we don't want to. Too many of us would rather live our lives and our marriages completely alone, out of the view of others. I mean, partially because we're afraid. What do they think if they knew that this was a problem in our home? What do they do if this comes to light? What will he think? What will she think? You realize that pride and isolation are some of the favorite tools of the devil to keep the followers of Jesus in sin? You're just playing right into his hand. Look, if you're struggling, if your marriage is hurting, you need help. You need help. And Jesus is there 
to help you. And he's placed you in a church full of other broken people who can help you. You want to try to help in your marriage? You want to be like Christ? Here's a way. Pursue some community. Get people around you who will challenge you, confront you, who will pray with you and for you, who will love you through the entire process of change because it can be very, very hard. All of us are sinners. All of us need help. There should be no reason why we're not turning to one another when we need these kinds of things. This is another way to show that experiential illustration of redemption that marriage is supposed to be. Number four, you need to serve. You need to be a servant. Jesus said he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I know this takes us back to selfishness, but one of the biggest problems I see you know, in marriage specifically in selfishness is when one partner wants to be served by the other. And, and okay, guys, and those of you who don't, maybe don't know this as well, whenever I get to these kinds of topics, I always like to pick on the husbands the most because I think we're the most responsible and this is the right way to doing this. But ladies, this is going to apply to you too. I'm just not going to address you right now. But I see this a lot with men. You work hard all day. I'm with you. I understand. I know, I know you work hard. I'm not questioning that. But when you get home, the rest of your hours are not yours. You get home, you're like, oh, I'm just going to sit down. I'm tired. I'm going to watch TV or read the paper, do whatever I want to do. As if your wife hasn't been working hard all day with your kids. As if she's just like, ah, da-da, bonbons and soap operas all day long. That's all I do. All I do. That's it. And so you don't help with the kids. You don't help with the meal. You don't help with the house. You're back in your castle. You're on your throne, and nothing will affect you from this point forward. You're a coward and a lazy bum. You may be a great leader at work, and I'm very thankful for that. Why are you failing in your leadership at home? Because you are failing if you're not serving your wife. You're not being like Jesus, because this is how Jesus was. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life. Your life is yours when you walk back in the door at 5 o'clock? What, what kind of, my life belongs to the Navy from 8 to 5, but from 5 to you know, 8 the next morning, I'm my own man. No, you're not. If God has graciously given you a spouse, your life belongs to her. And you have to serve her. And ladies, same as your, applies to you. Your husband's not there to serve you. You're there to serve him, to be a servant. It's not your life versus his. You're together, okay? That's what it's supposed to be. You want to see a change in your life. You want to be more like Christ so that you can have this, this experiential illustration of redemption. You have to serve each other like Jesus has served you. Number five, you need to recognize the mission. Because Jesus came to earth on a mission. His mission was to die so that we could be saved. Okay, that's it in a nutshell. Well, Paul has now explained to each and every one of us what our mission is. Okay, you're married. Great. Here's your mission. You need to let other people see the truth of redemption in your marriage. Okay, there's your mission in marriage. Mission is not to make each other happy, not to experience the American dream. Your mission is to be an experiential illustration of redemption. So that in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul can call us ambassadors of Jesus. That's because we're supposed to be reflecting him here. We're really ministers of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as something else. You remember that bit. Well, listen, if you're here with any other understanding of what marriage is all about, I'm telling you, if you want to be like Jesus and see a biblical marriage developed in your home, you've got to bring this in line. Your coworkers should be able to look at the love that you have for each other, the two of you have for each other, and say, what's different in that home? Your, your friends and family, your neighbors, they should be able to look at the respect with which you talk about each other and say, what is so different about your marriage than mine? I don't understand it. It should be constantly giving off the aroma of Christ. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? It should be constantly giving off the aroma of Christ everywhere you go. The aroma of death to those who are perishing, but the aroma of life to those who are being saved. They should smell Jesus in your marriage and in your home. And since God has given you your marriage as a gift anyway, now that you understand that, you recognize you, you've got a responsibility to be a good steward to do with it what he intended for you to do. Look, what I want you to learn from all of this is that changing your marriage is not based on works. It's not based on what you can do. 
It's based on grace. It's based on what Jesus can do and what he has already started to do in your lives. You can go to conferences. You can read all the self-help books you want. They might help with some of the external problems, which can be fine. I'm not, I'm not against that stuff. I don't want to come across as like I'm a, I don't know, some kind of ogre on this mess. Look, I want you to understand, though, that if you want to have a really, truly biblical marriage, stop looking out here. Look for the heart change. The heart issues. What is it at the heart of your marriage and the heart of your life as as a husband or a wife that needs to change to be more like Jesus so that you can show the beauty of redemption to everyone around you? When I look at these five principles from Genesis 2, I see that every single one of them is confirmed, exemplified, and empowered through Jesus in the gospel. Every single one. And that should give you hope. I don't care how bad things are in your home. That should give you hope because when the gospel comes to play, it changes stuff. It changes people. It changes marriages. It changes families. It changes kids and moms and dads, husbands, wives, everyone. It changes things. And God has given you his spirit, his word, his truth to do those things in each and every one of our lives today. Can you bow your heads for just for a moment? You know I don't ever hardly do this. I can't remember the last time I did something like this, but I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or look up or anything else. All I want you to do is to take a moment to consider where is your marriage right now? Don't, don't think about your spouse. Oh, if my husband would just change. I wish, I wish my husband would do this. No, 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 no. I wish my wife, no, 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 no. You, you, you're already messed up. You only need to think about yourself right this moment. As you think through these five principles about being one, about the marriage being ordained by God, about the important, all these things that we've looked at this morning. Did the Spirit at any point along the way prick your heart? Did He convict your conscience? Did He show you sin? Did he show you areas where you have been living in your own power and haven't been seeking Christ's likeness? If so, you should be thanking the Lord right this moment and asking for him to help change you in those areas. You've got to be in the word, but the Spirit has promised to take those truths and change us through them. And so for just a moment here, I'm going to give you about 10 seconds of silence. Will you talk to the Lord about those things? Will you ask him for his help in all those areas, and then I'll close this in prayer. Dear Lord, as I said at the beginning, it's our default setting to come into a, a message like this or a series like this and think, okay, what What can we get? What can we do? How can we change things? I don't like this. We're very foolish because we constantly think that we can do anything. But you said that you're the vine, we're the branches. And apart from you, we can't do anything at all. And that applies to our homes and our marriages as well. Another problem we struggle with, Lord, is this belief that somehow the issue in our marriage is that if we could just become a better person, if or if our spouse could become a better person. But again, Lord, we see that's not the issue. The issue is not for us to be better people. The issue is for us to be more like you. Because as we better reflect who you are, our marriages change without any work at all. It just happens because the gospels come to bear in our own hearts. Lord, I'm not naive I know that in this room, there are people who have struggled. And some of them this morning, Lord, may be sitting here and you may be working in their hearts. They might be fighting you. They might be resisting. They might be denying these things. Lord, will you and your grace and mercy to them help them see the fact that their marriages are intended to be an experiential illustration of redemption that they are supposed to reflect Christ in the church? And will you give them a work in their heart to cause them, Lord, to desire Christ's likeness more than anything else, to pursue it? 
Lord, for everyone in here, all of our marriages are imperfect, they're sinful. Lord, we need to become more like you in every area of life. Today, we're here just looking at this issue of marriage. We've helped the men in this church to lead well, to love their wives like you loved them. Will you help them to give of themselves, to sacrifice themselves for their wives, to have no friend who's closer, no earthly relationship more important than her? Lord, will you help the wives in this room to love their husbands, to help them and respect them like the church is supposed to do with you? Lord, give them the grace that they need to live with a bunch of men like us because we're sinful men. I think I, I pity the ladies more than anything else in this sitting. Lord, all we want is to reflect the beauty of the gospel in the marriages here at Cornerstone. We want our neighbors and our co-workers and our relatives to look at our homes. And while they're not perfect and we don't pretend to be, I want them to see the gospel at work so that you will take that and call people to yourself so that we can make more people like Jesus. That's our desire. So Lord, we give this message to you. We give our time to you. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen.